talk a little bit about freedom. Release. Essentially, to bear in mind, we use a word like freedom, and it can be one of those uh, buzzwords or wave banners about freedom, freedom to do what I want, freedom to do this, freedom for that. Either so the Buddha's uh, offering of freedom was freedom from suffering and stress, freedom from suffering and stress and uh, recognizing that uh, whatever other freedoms we have, freedom from disease, freedom to travel or whatever, these are all secondary uh, and, and may form part of the whole sense of freedom from stress, freedom from suffering and stress, freedom from uh, oppression. But that in the Buddhist, Buddhist teaching you go very deeply into that, into freedom from what the mind creates, freedom from what the mind creates for us. And you can see just in half an hour or so sitting still how the mind certainly is wants to keep creating something and mostly what it seems to create is, is some sort of you've got to do, you shouldn't be, why don't you get one of these, is this right, is this wrong, where are you going to go next, what about tomorrow, why waste your time sitting here. It actually tends to create stress, <laughs> different forms of it. Speculation, uh, doubt, worry, uh, wishing for things that aren't here, uh, wishing things that are here weren't here. Uh, you know, it always seems to be moving against what's actually happening. So, you know, when you just sit quietly, you can see that your mind normally will move to either towards the future with um, wish, you know, oh, I want one of those, or dread, oh my goodness, it's going to be Saturday tomorrow, oh no. Or it'll move towards the past with the same sorts of thing, nostalgia, how wonderful it was in the good old days, or some sense of regret. Oh, shame. Or it moves towards the sense of other people, worries about one's children, one's family, uh, concerns about uh, what other people think about you, comparisons and jealousies, things of this nature, or it moves towards the idea of ourself, what I should be, what I could be, what I'm probably never going to be, what I wish I was, what I think I, what I've got a horrible feeling I might be. You know, and I hope it never will be. You know. So it creates, doesn't it? Right now, this time, we don't have the need to know who we are. We're saying for half an hour, we can put things on hold. It's just an experiment. Just to look into the way the mind operates without our bidding. It creates self, it creates others, it creates the future, it creates the past. It creates obligations, it creates uncertainties, it creates worries, 
who creates uh, things to wish for. And right now, we can say, look, you, you know, you can, you don't have to do anything. You know, you can, you can just take a break from all that. This is, oh, this is really boring. It's not getting anywhere. I can do some more use of my time. We ought to get on with this. <laughs> you know, it make, makes a problem. It makes a problem out of out of out of being. You know? <laughs> it's not necessarily a big problem, but you can see just in this time when actually things are okay. There's a sense of making a problem. So we normally we 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 really experience our reality through this system, through this mental system. And the mental system is wanting. Wanting to have, wanting to not have, wanting to become, fearing that one might become something unpleasant, wanting to become something better. Uh, yeah. So you look at life like that, and there's a continual, there's a sense of dissatisfaction that goes along with it. Because you never ever become what you should be. <laughs> you never quite become what you want to be. So even if, you know, ten years ago you thought, oh, really what I want to do, what I want to be is I want to be sitting in Bodhi Heart Sanctuary in ten years' time. Yeah. When you get here, you think, oh, this is it? Oh, I thought it'd be better than this. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this for ten years. This isn't as good as it should be. <laughs> so, you, so, you know, it's not that uh, events don't pan out, you know, we, in a predictable way, but our emotional uh, sense of, of achievement doesn't ever finalise. You don't get to the feeling of this is it, this is enough. Yeah? <laughs> this is exactly right. And then when you do get these moments, these peak moments, you notice how they kind of whoop and it's gone. And then you want another one. Because one wasn't enough. <laughs> or you want to have it again. So one of the uh, uh, things that happen in meditation is a lot of time we, we just can't seem to get it right. So it's that the unsatisfactoriness of not being able to concentrate, not getting calm, not getting peaceful. And you suffer because of that. And sometimes your mind goes calm and peaceful, and you suffer because you want more of it. <laughs> I want to have that happen again. Or you say, does this mean I'm a stream mentor? Or is that wrong view? Or does that mean I'm in Pawanga, or is that Niroda, or is it this, or is it Jhana? What is it? So we go into doubt, speculation. Or we think, well, now I'm, I'm one of these. Now I'm a, I'm a Sotapati. <laughs> so, I mean, did you know that? I'm a Sotapati. So what? You know, well, you know, it means something. <laughs> so, always a sense of the, the becoming is uh, uh, something that keeps generating a sense of what I will be. Yeah. Now it's obviously, when you, you know, whenever you review your, your present moment experience, there's whatever you think you are, and assume you are, feel you are, feel you should be, and there's also your ability to witness that, isn't it? 
So I remember the first um, meditation period I had, where, where I was it, 35 years ago or so. I was asked to, to, to watch, watch the breath, and of course I couldn't do it. My mind was just running around all over the place. But the one thing I noticed was my mind is running around all over the place, and I'm aware of that. So how, how can that be? I mean, which one is me? The mind is running around, or the mind is watching the running around? Huh? This is strange. As a two of me? Or what? So I, that's why I thought I'd better go to a meditation a monastery and find out. So go to a monastery in order to resolve this sense. Yeah? A lot of time there can be this conflict between me and my mind. Yeah? <laughs> I don't want my mind to be like this. I don't want my mind to have these stupid thoughts in it. I want my mind to be quiet and happy and peaceful. I really get annoyed with my mind for being so, so reckless and so stubborn. Who, who is it who's annoyed with your mind? Who's that? Is that the mind or is it not the mind? So there's all these, you can see these various currents that are in conflict with each other. And the conflict is always coming around there are the various streams of mental activity emotional activity, thought activity and they're all trying to say I'm the boss here <laughs> they want to say, they're all trying to say I'm the real one yeah. Uh, yeah. and trying to control it but actually none of them are the real one there isn't the real one that's the the most shocking truth of all, there is, just isn't a real one at all. It's just these currents of uh, thought and emotions and conflicting opinions and views moving on. And when we understand that, which may seem to be really uh, a very pessimistic experience, we, what happens is the only thing that can happen then starts to happen. That's why you have to come to this point of really recognizing the, the way that there's no way out through this process of judging and viewing and trying to be and trying not to be. The only way out is when you come to really understand there's no way out, what you do is you begin to give up, you begin to relax, you begin to let go, you begin to add less emotional material to the whole mix and it starts to quieten down. You become more dispassionate towards it more spacious around it, and it starts to quieten down. And you add less to it, and it starts to loosen up. And then there's this experience of quietness, experience of dispassion, experience of moving to a different dimension, dimension of freedom. So, when I first uh, started practicing, then I thought, well, I'll stay in a monastery because I don't, I don't have the kind of determination or the willpower to really do this practice unless, unless I'm more or less tied down, <laughs> locked up. <laughs> 
so I, I went, so I stayed in the, in the monastery, and uh, you know, so I thought, well, I'd probably get this done in a few few weeks, and then, then I'll do, you know, something else. And uh, so once I get my, you know, I get my mind clear, clear enough, then I'll figure out what I want to do. Three weeks, well maybe a couple of months, maybe a year or two, it's 35 years later, still waiting. <laughs> Actually I'm not waiting anymore, I've decided it's already happened. <laughs> Life has already happened, I didn't have to decide it, so it took over. <laughs> But one of the things that did keep me in the monastery was that every thought I had, I had many of them, thoughts about why I wanted to get out of it and leave, every one of them I could sense, this isn't a good thought, this is based on craving, this is based on fantasy, this is based on negativity, you know. I thought, you know, I decided I get these kind of fantasies and well maybe I could, um, I could go out and live in the country somewhere and just have a few carrots, grow carrots and have a few goats and live up on a hill somewhere. And I'll be peaceful then. Thought, no, you won't. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so you see the mind continually keeps throwing up these pictures of what you could be, what you should be. Yeah. But you notice that that's been happening all your life and it still hasn't come up with a convincing picture, convincing presentation of what you should be, or what you actually are. They always can tell you what you should be, could be, probably aren't, but it can never say what you are. <laughs> In a way that's really convincing, a way that's not marked with greed or fear or distress or conceit. Yeah? And because of that, we recognize there is a freedom. There's a freedom from the mind. Yeah. Eventually we realize the mind can only make rough approximations of truth. So we start to become more dispassionate towards it, more flexible, more open-minded, more tolerant. We live more lightly. Because the great plans and the great worries and the great um, sort of scenarios we run through in our minds are just like strange dreams, strange movies. And you get familiar with them as you sit and meditate because they, they play all the time, these strange movies and strange tunes. And you get familiar with them. And you begin to sense this one's based upon you know, craving, this one's based upon anxiety, this one's based upon doubt, this one's based upon irritation, this one's based upon uh, impatience. You know? When you start to eliminate or let go of the, the, these uh, mental additions, what do you have left? Yeah? That's what freedom is about. It's about what we finally, all that we have left is freedom. The funny thing is that most of our lives we spend running away from freedom. 
running away from that place because in it is no real room for self there are particular ways in which we the way in which we get uh, trapped or the way in which the sense of being trapped occurs in its various forms the end point of it will always come down to the sense of me, I am this that's, that's the end result of it so you know, you, you witness a particular train of thought and you see at the end of it, there you are being blamed oh dear, being blamed again no. or there you are being late oh you're being late again or there you are not getting done what you should get done oh failed again no. or there you are losing oh I lost again no. So, or you get trapped by them. every one of them it brings you into some sense of what, what you are or they're the ones that say if you did this you could be this and you get this picture of yourself looking radiant and happy yeah. if you went and bought one of these then you'd feel like this yeah. you get this little, little emotional picture or if you married this person you'd feel like this <laughs> <laughs> and then, ah, it didn't happen. You let me down. <laughs> or if you worked really hard and you got a, you got promotion, and then you'd be like this. Yeah? And you work really hard, and you do get promotion. Instead of that, you're just like that. <laughs> it's kind of worn out. So every one of these pictures, either pictures which take us to a seemingly positive future or a seemingly negative future, the end result is we get a, an emotional telegram, an emotional picture of this is what you will be. And we, we, we're, we're convinced of that. Emotion, we're not convinced of it in our thinking, but emotionally we feel convinced of that for that moment. Yeah? It's a very curious, it's kind of, it's very irrational. Like if you look on a box of soap powder, you'll see some woman holding a shirt, looking totally happy. You know, she's washed this shirt, and she's looking blissful. You know, that she's washed this shirt. Yeah. Or you see someone buy, you know, buy a SIM card or something, and they're looking really happy, making a telephone call. And you say, get this picture, you know, this is what makes you happy. Soap powder, SIM card, insurance policy, you know, pair of shoes. And they're always good looking as well. You never see any old, ugly, depressed people in, in advertisements. <laughs> they always nobody ever, you know, they're always looking happy, young, good looking, you know. Who are these people? You look around the street, you don't see them. <laughs> get this emotional telegram gets kind of transmitted to your nervous system that gives this gives right it kind of fits in with this dream this is what I could be and then, then oh, we have that hunger it's called it's called tanha or thirst the hunger of being bhava tanha it's called the Buddha explains this is one of the most fundamental uh, things that uh, keep us from being free 
is we are caught in this bhava tanha. There are three kinds of craving, if you remember, karma tanha, which is the craving for sensual hits, get a quick hit off of something. More profound of that is bhava tanha, which is the sense of I will be, I want to be, I don't want to be this, I will be that. And we get this kind of emotional telegram, this emotional picture opens up. You know, if I do this I'll be blamed. I don't want to be blamed, so I try and get, find a way out of it. And yet, whatever you do, sooner or later you get blamed. Whatever you do, sooner or later you get pain. Whatever you do, sooner or later you get loss. Whatever you do, sooner or later you get failure. Yeah? These are called the ways of the world, the worldly dharmas. There's no one who doesn't get blame, loss, failure, <laughs> unhappiness. Yeah? And uh, we think that, and there's always that, that sense in which it shouldn't be this way. The Buddha made it very clear that even for himself, there was still the blame. People blamed him, people tried to kill him. Um, many of the people he ordained, you know, who became, uh, you know, lost, lost it completely. So it wasn't like he was a complete success in his own lifetime. Many people couldn't understand what he was talking about. Uh, uh, some people who, who followed him lost faith. You know. So you could see the Buddha was a failure. <laughs> you know. He wasn't able to even save his own country from being destroyed. So the Buddha was uh, one of failure, uh, blame, got, ended up getting this terrible sickness, colic and dysentery and dying in uh, some d dysentery under a tree in India. Hardly the place you most wish to die in. So even the Buddha is bound, in, something is bound into that. And, but there's a very clear uh, understanding that what is bound into that is, is not self. It's something that's not what you are. It's something that you can be free from. And the freedom doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It means you're not emotionally engaged with it. You're not caught in it. You don't have a picture. This is what I am. So the real trap is just this continual picturing, this continual emotional telegram getting transmitted to your nervous system saying this is what you are. This is what you could be. This is what you were. So in one way, all of us experience some success, some failure, some happiness, some unhappiness, some praise, some blame, some people like us, some people don't like us. Yeah? That's what happens. But actually, the, the freedom is not that that shouldn't happen. The freedom is that there isn't the emotional telegram saying, this is what you are. Instead, there's an understanding, this is what happens to everybody. This is, this is the deal, this is what you're in, this is the world, it's like this. And you can be free from it through really letting go of this bhavatanda, of this desire to be, this desire to become. Now in a seemingly, um, could be sound contradictory, 
but actually, as you probably recognise, letting go takes a bit of work. <laughs> it takes a bit of work. And uh, just as uh, the, in order to, 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 bring, to make that work possible, then ironically you have to become something. Or there has to be becoming. And the becoming is called bhavana rather than bhava, making certain mind states come into being. It doesn't mean making identity, it means making mind states come into being. Making the state of, of patience, making the state of sati, mindfulness, come into being. So there is a becoming and a process of cause and effect of things being brought into, into existence such as mindfulness, investigation, uh, kindness, joyfulness. These are what become, we can bring into being, can come into being, and they help to create the strengths, support, in order to see through this incredible dream of self. Now, this is a... So, mindfulness, when you're bringing your mind to bear upon something, then immediately you do that, you're able to witness what's going on. Then you can see, whatever I can witness is not myself. It must be something other than that. This is the power of mindfulness. So, fundamental practice. When you investigate, you inquire, you start to look into the things that you think you are. How true is that? So you start to investigate, it's called investigation. So, you know, you say, well, what, what do you think you are? What do you imagine yourself as being? You look into that, that first impression that comes up. Is it true? What makes it seem true? Can you let go of that? And you find you can. You look into what um, the expectations that get placed upon you about what you should be. So, you know, you see my, in my own life, you know, now they, they call me a Buddhist monk, and so people say, you know, you're a Buddhist monk, um, you, know, you should, uh, well, you're an abbot of a monastery, I'm the abbot of a monastery, so. And I never really figured out what I was supposed to do as abbot of a monastery. Somebody said, I was asked to go and be the abbot of the monastery. And I said, okay, I, what do you want to do? He said, well, just be there, do a few talks. You know. So I come to the monastery and okay, do a few talks. And then people would say, oh, there's this problem, da -da -da -da, and we need a solution. What should we do? You're the abbot. And I go, oh. And then you get letters addressed to the abbot, people complaining about this, that, and the other. You're the abbot, so you should solve this. And then there's a problem with the finances, so we better see the abbot. Because it's a, finances need, you know, looks like we're not getting enough income to support the monetary, so you better tell the abbot. Right? And then some people come, they've got a complaint about a certain monk. 
because he wants to see the other. Uh-huh. So I'm starting to get a feeling for what I am, you know. <laughs> and all of it comes with, you're the person who should make things right. You're the person who should make people happy. You're the person who should make the monastery perfect. You're the person who should know everything. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> but you, you see the amount of, um, of stress you can inherit just from believing in that particular picture, that emotional telegram that comes with your name on it. You're her mother, therefore you should make her be like this, because you're her mother. Ah. <laughs> she should be like this. If, you, if you're, you're her mother, you should make her like this. Ah. Really? So you see the kind of, uh, or you get that in your own mind, happening. Well, I am this, therefore I should be able to do this. You see the suffering that gets created around that. And so we think, okay, this means you have no responsibilities, you don't give a damn about everybody else. No, but what it means is that you start to look at a, a problem and see what resources and facilities there are in your own mind. And then you start to operate from a place of compassion. So there is a freedom to operate, to make conditions, to make mind states to make circumstances happen. You know, there's the freedom to bring one's strengths and one's values into life. And it becomes a lot grander and a lot better and a lot more beautiful when you get the sense of self out of the way. When you get the sense of, of having to be something out of the way. And there's a sense, a beautiful sense of the humility of service in the world. Um, certainly what I found most inspiring in, in, in Buddhist circles is to, to see the kind of uh, Dharma centers, teachings, teachers, books that get printed by people who have no idea about who they are. <laughs> They're just doing it because it's a good thing to do. just doing it because that's the nature of human goodness, is to bring forth what's good and right and true. And we don't actually need this burden of self. So freedom from self doesn't mean you don't act, it means you can act free of that. It doesn't mean you have to act, it means you, have a, you can make the choice. You can act, not act, you can, there can be a decision-making process. And it takes the weight off weight of your life. So I offer this for your reflection and uh, we have some time so please I'd like to ask some questions, pull things over. Yes? Can witness 
What is it? <laughs> yeah, is it a what? What is it that can witness? Well, the uh, qualities of, of, our, of our conscious, mental consciousness are such that, you know, in built-inness there's that's the, the, the ability or that possibility to, to think, you know, but consciousness always um, has a fundamental quality of awareness. So, thought is a, if you like, thought is a secondary aspect of consciousness. The most fundamental aspect of consciousness is, is just the sense of receiving impressions. Yeah. So that comes through the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and so forth. It just receives impressions. So people who can't think, or have brain damage, or, or, you're, or you're asleep, or something like that, or the moment when you first wake up in the morning, and from just a second or a, half, or a second and a half or something you know before the whole day thing begins you know there's some sort of like a state of openness and you're just sensing presence so that's a more primary function of consciousness and then the other aspects get built into that um, it's called, so that the process of construction is called Sankara Sankara is the constructions of, um, which there are, there are um, verbal constructions which are the thought forms but that kind of comes on top of the primary level of consciousness which is just awareness itself so when we, whenever we, and we, we, you know, we have this happening all the time all the time you know, you're thinking and something you can be going oh no that's not the right answer or, so that if it wasn't if it wasn't like that, we'd just be um, completely mindless. We'd just be reacting all day long. There'd be no ability to to scrutinise. So this quality of consciousness allows is always associated with um, wisdom. So interesting enough, in the in the scriptures, it's said that wisdom and consciousness are conjoined. In other words, as long as there's consciousness or human consciousness, there already is wisdom. Because it's the ability to witness a thought, a feeling, an emotion, and sense, do you want to follow this or not? Now, what we're given, as a given norm, is the ability to witness. Yeah? And even that we don't use very much. <laughs> Most of it's kind of half-witness, or like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we don't really, really use it clearly. Um, so that um, though we get this gift of, of wisdom which comes with consciousness, 
um, the saying is that wisdom and consciousness are to be developed uh, are, are conjoined what has to be done is that wisdom has to be developed and consciousness has to be understood that is one should be wise about consciousness so development of wisdom is just to spend more time and to put more emphasis on the witnessing faculty the first thing we witness is um, the fact that we can witness oh, that's interesting I, mean, I don't just have to react to everything that happens yeah? I'm not just kind of ricocheting around well look at that, isn't that interesting and then from that position you start to get some sense of well there's all these thoughts and things which, which are the good ones and then how do you know what good is yeah. because the one that's happening at the moment seems true until it passes or you know. so you start to develop wisdom by looking at cause and effect but what's the result of that thought where does it go to it goes to some kind of agitated state or some negative state or well, no, don't, don't follow that one so then you start to develop wisdom through, through being wise about cause and effect yeah? so the witness becomes first of all ethically attuned I mean, and then it becomes attuned to what, are, what kind of activities or what sort of attitudes or what sort of energies come in that allow the thought process to quieten down altogether because that feels better if my mind isn't so busy I actually feel a lot happier so not, that's not ethical that's more energetic you might say what's a more comfortable and peaceful and serene energy level so you start the wisdom develops in terms of samadhi and energy and then beyond that wisdom starts to develop as well even with this sense of calm and serenity there's still the feeling of uh, I've got this I want this to go on or I haven't got enough of this um, and then the wisdom starts to check it what is actually the, 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 the root cause of this sense of stress that comes up with wanting more wanting less and it starts to recognize that the, the root source of it is this creation of self which is really craving you know, a feeling of grasping I want to hold on so that wisdom then starts saying well can, is it possible to sense that holding on and relax it release it let things be as they are and not hold on and then when that comes around yeah, as, you be, as that begins to occur uh, then we get the experience called um, Niroda or cessation, cessation of grasping, cessation of creating things, cessation of creating self. And then from that point, the final piece is the witness recognizes the only thing that's really getting in the way now is this sense of witnessing. <laughs> you know, because it's still, it's still some sense of you know, division and stress with that. So then that, that is called relinquishment. But you have to first of all, you know, uh, freedom. First of all, is freedom from this confusion of not of not even knowing you can witness. So freedom. Then the next set of freedom is freedom in terms of ethics. 
that is you really understand cause and effect and you really don't get trapped in these seductive forces that take you to bad places you really know that the next set of freedom is freedom in terms of ability to moderate the mental energies and freedom from being out thinking at all and the last sense of freedom is freedom from the sense of self of, of grasping experience so that's, that's the witness and you see that the witness eventually it's a function of consciousness that can be developed to the point where it, it actually completely unfolds say to that is that um, by and large that people get conditioned and get uh, into a very contracted experience of mind that is you don't experience your mind, you only experience part of it and the part you experience is just the thinking bit and uh, you know and you don't experience the so much the, the un underlying sensitivity um, so we live in a section of our mind you might say and when you live there you don't it's so busy and so intense and so important there that you don't recognize there's another your mind can open somewhere bigger yeah. Now, for example, you, with children, they actually haven't quite got that messed up yet. So often, <laughs> you know, you see children are pretty much, uh, it's quite confused, but they can be very instinctive, you know, wild, uh, emotional. They're not just living in their heads. You know? Whereas the adult tends to get trained to live in their heads because this is the bit that you can most easily program. And, uh, uh, yeah. but the result is that often you, you're not really aware of your body sometimes people are hardly aware of their emotions unless they're really powerful so what we need to do is, is to develop a big, bigger mind yeah. and it starts off with um, you know, doing meditation exercises that's, that's, the, that's the essential one you know, if you do those, then it's always going to get bigger because all, you know you're you're really establishing um, the sense of witnessing your mind. You're generally getting some sense of being as sensitive to your body. Um, you begin to be more aware of the underlying emotional currents. So it's a bigger thing. It's still a mess, but it's a bigger mess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it's, 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 a, it's a kind of mess that's less believable because you think, wow, this is strange, what's all this? And after a while, if you kind of, it's almost like you open up this very tight package and you realize how much confusion's in there. Oh my goodness. And then the point is to not get phased by that. 
but continue opening it out, ventilating it, and gradually all that congestion and compacting confusion will start to evaporate. You know? So you keep developing witnessing sense, mindfulness, sati sampajanya, and adding less and less opinions, emotions, judgments to that process, and it starts to ventilate, it starts to boil off, you might say, until it cools down. But, um, you know, that's the process, and often we don't start that process until we begin to be in a bit of a jam already. You know, people don't meditate when they're feeling, you know, oh, life's fine, you generally meditate because things aren't right. So by the time you start to meditate, you know, you've got some stuff you've got to undo. So it's not, not exactly a, <laughs> a rosy experience. Uh, but you always got to come back to the fact that you can witness this, it's not what you are. It's not permanent, it changes. Yeah. Other people have been here, yeah. and there are certain definite things you can do that will speed that process along that you can trust, like being mindful. That's not a dogma, that's not a belief, it just means notice what's happening. Yeah. It's not indoctrination, it's just an encouragement, isn't it? Um, uh, discern the difference between uh, negativity and positive thoughts and let go of the negative stuff, you know. Yeah. Whatever it is, however it is, however justified it is, so you can do that, you can see that. Yeah. So these are very reliable, simple instructions, but really taking them into the depths of, of the mind and daily life. That's that's the practice, that's the test. it's your mind you know. so you're the one who has to live with it so you, you decide what you're allowed to do or not <laughs> yeah you can do that <laughs> well you'll probably find that these things come and go in time you know, that uh, I'd always recommend, you know, remembering mindfulness of the body because it does stabilize. Yeah? And there's times when you just want to witness your thoughts coming and going. That seems to be, um, for some strange reason, that seems to be what what's, works best for you. And then at other times you feel like you want to just return to the breath or the body, be with that, or you generate loving kindness. These are all different tools you might say. Like you've got a tool belt with a screwdriver and a hammer and a plane and a needle on it and you decide which one you want to do. But you keep a few handy so that it depends what the job is that you want to do.
<laughs> well, if I said only one, would you do it? Well, it helps in order to get the sense of, of witnessing your breath. It does help to have a medium that allows you to let go of it. So, for example, if we're sitting here, you, know, you can just sit and let the thoughts come and go. And if you do that, it's just quite an interesting exercise. You know, a lot of them just kind of... Blah, 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 and then something comes on that really catches you. And you're in it. You're not witnessing, you're in it. And it starts to get the emotional current comes along with it. And that's the time when it's really helpful to have something that goes, Hey, hey, hey. Remember, hey, remember. It's just a thought, remember. You know? So it could be just, you know, you can interrupt that with a thought. Like, you start to feel yourself suffering and getting, you, know, you can feel the engine start whirring, you know? And then, okay, how are you feeling now? Where's your body now? Where's your breath now? What's happening? Can you just try and breathe out? So you can use it just as a way to keep levering yourself away from those really compelling thoughts. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, I, I teach taught meditation for maybe 28, 30 years. Wherever I teach, people do what they do. <laughs> You know, they end up doing basically what works for them at the end of the day, you know. But, uh, you know, so some people find that they, 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 they just can't do mindfulness of breathing. It doesn't work. So they find something that does work. And, uh, you know, the Eightfold Path, you know, mindfulness works, but mindfulness of breathing doesn't always work. So you try to look at the, what are the absolute requirements and get those in place and then you can look at what systems and techniques can help to boost that. So if breathing in and out helps mindfulness, then you use it. If it just becomes another problem, another work project you can't do and makes you feel despondent, don't do it. Don't feel compelled, don't feel you ought to. But at the same time, feel if you want to have a I'll have a try at that, you know, just for maybe 10 minutes. I'll just have a go at it. Just exercise. Without a judgment. You know, just to see the effects of it and do it like that. Don't do meditation with a feeling of compulsion. Do it with a sense of the spirit of inquiry, the pioneering spirit, the let's have a go, the, that kind of, you know, interest. Because otherwise your mind isn't going to do it. It just gets bored and it gets stubborn and it gets restless. It's not going to do it. You can only do it if your heart's in it. If your heart's not in it, it isn't, you're not going to do it, no matter what. It just isn't going to happen. Because, as we were saying before, you know, the thinking mind is only one aspect of mind. 
so you know you have these thoughts of I should do mindfulness of breathing, I should do mindfulness of breathing and meanwhile a big part of your, of your mind is going no I'm not <laughs> I'm not interested you know and it's only when you get the whole of your mind in which the mindfulness really means you know the whole of the mind means you're, you're really with it there's a sense of, of emotional you might say or, or intuitive interest in that then you're being mindful it's not just the process of thought yeah. now a thinking person someone you know I'm quite a thought person probably benefits generally benefit from things that counteract that so um, uh, I find personally you know making devotional offerings because it's a very heartful experience um, generating love and kindness to other people that's a, that's a heart experience because I'm you know I've been up in my head for at least 25 years I was just completely in my head <laughs> so I actually needed to get something to develop this up, these other faculties and um, things like as I was saying yesterday things like qigong help because they give they bring up the aspect of the mind that's embodied the mind is also embodied it's also the sense that goes hey you're not in balance you know that's why when you're drunk you fall over because you lose your embodied mind and your embodied mind that tells you whether you're, whether you're in balance you know how to operate which is not a thought mind it's an embodied mind so things like qigong definitely help bring up that aspect of mind and so the bigger and the wider it gets um, then the stronger and more useful it is it brings us different faculties different, different strengths come in the embodied mind is centered in the abdomen there's a whole set of nerves operate around here that carry consciousness so you notice when you're frightened or you're in a panic <laughs> happens there this is the one that's basically about maintaining your presence so if you're, if, you're, if you're feeling, if you're on a ship and you can't find your sea legs you get very active in your belly sometimes people throw up, you know, you get tense here because it's, it's the aspect of mind that's just about establishing here I am, here I am yeah? Yeah? it's about establishing presence the aspect, there's a lot of mind is in the heart and this is about our sense of relationship how am I feeling with you? How's this going? How, how, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a relational sense. It's, um, this is where I am. This is how I am. And this is what I'm going to do about it. This bit says what I'm going to do about it. Just keeps telling you what I'm going to do about how I feel where I am. Yeah? That's, that's its function. It's useful. But the problem is it can be telling me what I'm going to do when I don't want to do anything. <laughs> or it's trying to find an answer that should be answered here. It's trying to find an answer here that really has to come from here. And a lot of our difficulties are, are because we try to find intellectual answers to emotional questions. So when I'm trying to figure out you know, you've got some problem with someone else and you should be, why are you like this, why are you like that what you should really be saying is I love you 
you know, could, could we be friends? You know, why, you know, that's the answer. It's not an answer that, and yet we start saying, you like this, you shouldn't be like that, why did you do this, why did you do that? Really you should say, I feel upset, I feel disappointed. Um, how are you? And then suddenly this whole thing drops to a level where we can find a resolution. Yeah. So that, so that you, you, you know, it's good to energize these aspects, different aspects of mind. Potentials for mind are very are, are huge, huge potentials. See, so you have um, you know process of consciousness, which is uh, the ability to be aware through the senses, and the ability to to uh, organize or to be wise about that, very simply speaking. Now that faculty can develop to an enormous degree. Sometimes without any effort, some people just have got it already. You know. you know, so, it's not, the mind isn't really a thing at all. It's not a thing, it's, a, it's an energetic process. Yeah. So just like, uh, how do you define energy? Is it something, is it nothing? It's not something, it's not nothing. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing event rather than the thing. There's no location apart from where it chooses to be located. Yeah? So... No? If I have a... We've got a flashlight here. <laughs> now we have an audio-visual aid, you see? And, uh, unfortunately, you can't really see this spot of light, can you, very well? This is starting to be much better. We say, oh, the mind is on the floor. The mind is the floor. Oh, no, it's not. The mind is the carpet. Oh, the mind is the carpet and the floor. Oh, the mind, you know... Oh, the mind is, it could flood the whole room, couldn't it? And we say, you always say the mind is really what the mind is looking at. Yeah? Is the mind in the bell? Yeah, sure it is. There it is. It's really bright and shining. So, well, it's the, no, no, it's not. It's, it's there. Yeah? 
And he said, look, this one, you can have a blue one. And a green mind. And a <laughs> different colors. So this is, uh, you know, this is enlightenment. Right? It's completely white. This is Kusalakamma, blue. <laughs> when it's blue. <laughs> so you have these different, <laughs> different levels of, of mental stream, and yet you can, none of them are the mind. They're just the manifestations. You could say the mind is just the ability for there to be light, and yet light itself has no particular dimension. Yeah? How do, we, how do we know light? We know light because it strikes objects. Yeah? We know light because of what it illuminates. So we know mind because of what mind brings into manifestation. But mind is not essentially a manifest... You know, in that sense, the unconditioned mind is not, is not a manifestation. It tends to become it because it gets embroiled with uh, karma, with sankharas, with becoming, with tanha, it clings so that it forms and it, it condenses and it contracts into skillful or unskillful states. You can witness a skillful state, you can witness an unskillful state. Yeah. So the, the abiding of the Buddha is not in the skillful or the unskillful. So the nature of Buddha is not skillful or unskillful. So if you're looking at the most ultimate definition of mind as being the body mind, it's not skillful, it's not unskillful. It doesn't come, it doesn't go. It doesn't arrive anywhere, it doesn't leave anywhere. It doesn't exist anywhere, it doesn't locate anywhere. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but for most of us the mind is definitely a kind of lumpy thing that lumbers along thinking and feeling and jumping around and like a monkey that's what it is <laughs> well there are two, two qualities you can properly recognize with the uh, you know in the mind that we have you know, it's, it's always a bit foolish to, to speculate on the Buddha mind, but you know, is that there's a, a quality of energy because the mind certainly keeps things are moving along within that, and there's a quality of awareness, which is a sense of knowing. So it has these two fundamental uh, qualities: energy and awareness. You know, so the energy is the sankara aspect, and the awareness is the vijnana aspect, vijnana or the consciousness aspect. So by and large, you know, you, you tend to, the Sankara aspect, the energy aspect, you tend to, you know, to channel into skillfulness. You know, so you develop patience, you develop determination, you develop calming. Those are all energies. You moderate and you chant and use energy. So you tidy up all this huge energy potential by putting it into particular channels. Yeah. Uh, but by and large what you do is you, you gather the energy together so it's not running everywhere and it starts to settle down yeah? and then it becomes more still then the quality of awareness becomes more and more to the fore more apparent 
also that's why you know that the nibbana is called it means the kind of you've actually turned the energy off it's just the awareness the energy is in a kind of rest state it's not generating anything it's just in rest rather like the laptop you know when you put it on standby <laughs> just ticking over it's not running any programs Sorry? <laughs> Is the unmanifested mind connected? No, no, you can't. You can't say anything about the unmanifested mind. You can say that you know the the the, the conditioned mind is um, the conditions are connected you know the cause and effect the un- unconditioned is not connected to anything you know, if it was it would be conditioned so it's not it's not the unconditioned is witnessing the conditioned because it wouldn't be unconditioned then it still be some derivative state Emptiness. Well, emptiness is a term that has slightly different meanings in different Buddhist traditions. Yeah. So um, I don't want to misrepresent traditions I'm not so aware of or not so tuned into. But uh, emptiness can in some schools be talked about as a kind of essence essential nature of things is their emptiness meaning they have no finite no independent existence they're all relative they're all um, you know so um, nothing exists independently everything is formed of something else things are void of, of uh, substance we might say this body is really not a, not a single thing, but a, um, it's made of earth and air and fire and food and air, you know, and water. So it doesn't exist independently of all these different conditioning forces. So you might say there's no there's no absolute existence, just as a relative existence. And so with that kind of analysis, then all all conditioned phenomena can be seen as empty of of lasting substance. They're just purely kind of stuck together. Yeah. But the way the, the Buddha talked about emptiness was um, in three particular ways. One, 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 one way he used emptiness as a pejorative word, meaning it's useless. Um, so when he was talking to his son Rahula, for example, uh, who was a novice, he's saying, you know, if you tell a lie, your life is empty. It's worthless. You know what kind of value is there in a life of a, a mind that tells a lie? It's, it's just like a like a pot, of, like a water pot with a hole in it. It's just useless. So it's empty of empty of anything valuable. Um, the other way he used it was a, was as a meditation instruction. 
And there's a very interesting sutta called the Chula Sunyata Sutta, the Lesser Discourse on Emptiness, which deals with a particular way of meditating where you notice what isn't present. Um, so, and as you notice what isn't present, you notice the, the disturbances that were generated by that presence are no longer there. So you keep abiding in the sense of something, the absence of disturbance. Now, for example, I think when the Buddha taught this, he was teaching in a place that had been um, a palace. And he said, look around, now you see in this palace is now empty of, of minstrels, empty of soldiers, empty of kings, empty of queens. So all the kind of rackets and racket that, that was, was uh, attributable to those causes is no longer here. So notice that, notice that absence. And then he'd say, you know, well then you go to a uh, uh, forest and you notice in the forest there isn't the sound of the villages. So it's empty of the disturbance that caused by the villages. And when you sit in the forest you notice that uh, you can look at the forest and see all these different trees or you could just sense the um, quality of the forest itself and let go of these particular preferences for this and for that and the other. So you gradually empty out the activities of the mind which get generated around things that should be or shouldn't be or likes or dislikes and as you, as you empty out your mind becomes increasingly more subtle. Um, so, and your mind becomes more singular. So for example, when we experience our own bodies, we could experience you know, the uh, fingers, the feet, the ears, the nose, or you could just say, well, there's just a body here. You know, let go of all these little bits and pieces, just get to the simplicity of a body. And then as you feel your body, you can feel the sense of the, the, the earth element, the fire, the water, the fire, you know, in the body. And so you just go to the earth element and let go of the rest of it. So by doing this, you gradually simplify and uh, deconstruct the complexities of the mind. So it becomes very, very single, one-pointed. So it's a, it's a meditation system. And what it does is it means that the things that we would normally get get moved by or excited by or disappointed by gradually de deconstructed so the mind begins to empty out of its agitation so it becomes very calm and serene and he said then then when you recognize this quality of, of absolute serenity you recognize this quality of serenity itself is conditioned I've, I've created this there's no point in hanging on to it then the mind becomes empty of clinging so that, that's that particular thing. And so that meditation instruction leads to the, the, the other um, way of, of describing emptiness, which is empty of clinging, empty of self, as a realization experience. Um, So you notice when something does seem to be digging into you and present, you know, for you, something that's kind of really holding you or binding you, 
what, what, what gives this thing this power? Why is it so solid? Why is it so real? And somewhere in there, without knowing it, without deliberately doing it, there's a reflex that's clinging. And as you, as you, as you go through and you deconstruct, you come to the point where you can experience this hold, something holding on. And then you can re- relax that. I can't really testify to that, you know, where I was in the previous, I don't know. 
but he said all these other things that seem reliable he says this too, so maybe that is reliable because you can trust the teacher who taught it understand? so you can say, well okay, I'll, I'll intellectually hold that idea as a possible explanation yeah. um, but at the end of the day, really I, I don't think it's a question that isn't is not to be it's not really an answer up in the head, it's an answer in the heart because there is that the real problem is not a question on karma, the real problem is I find myself really distressed that people can't seem to grow up, get enlightened, you know or that I can't help other people that's, that's the question really that, that's the question about this religion that I see like how we reach out to yeah, yeah. sometimes yeah, at the end we see someone in the world and we want to help ourselves your question really is the nature of compassion there's nothing in this religion that teaches us it's only ourselves, towards ourselves. No, no, I wouldn't say that. I would definitely not say that. I would say that what you can most clearly, what he says you can most clearly testify to is the experience you're having. The, the, what it's, why, you know, what it most clear, what it says you can testify to, what you can really rely upon is, is the experience you're having. You know, not somebody else telling you, but the experience you're having is what you can rely upon. So in that sense, it's based upon yourself. But if you look at all the fundamental Buddhist practices, they're, they're, they're based upon um, to others as to myself. Dharma, generosity, uh, sila, morality. Yeah? Those are the, I say, are the doorways. Compassion, loving-kindness. Equanimity. You know, those are all based upon the sense of self and other, and let there be no distinction between self and other. Let me behave towards you as I would behave towards myself. Uh, let me act towards you as I wish you to act towards me. So it's very, in a relational sense, it's very pure. It's not just, well, I'm looking after myself, tough luck, and get on with your own trip, you know. <laughs> That's your business. But it's, it's also saying, look, you know, I'd like to offer this to you, but also I recognise you have the, the right to say, um, no thanks, um, I'm fine. Or perhaps I have to recognise that my wish that you be a certain way is my wish. You know, I want you to be enlightened, but that's my wish. That's, and it's not your wish. Maybe you'd sooner be a you know, successful businessman or a drug racketer, traffic or something. <laughs> you know, so it's an offering. It's an offering, but it's not um, to others. But it doesn't. It also recognises that the sense of otherness is—it's a relative truth. Yeah. That other people think differently. Other people are experiencing other people, the sense of other people is exactly the manifestation of different karma. Once you really kind of contemplate not self, you realise what why that there and that there and that there are different is because of karma. That's that karma, that's that karma, that's that karma. They're different. So there's this karma, this is different. 
at a certain point, it may be that these karma streams are close enough together that they can say, hey, hey, hello, 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 hey. You can start to meet. Sometimes they're not. That isn't up for me to choose. I can't say, I want you to be like me. However good my intentions are, I can't make that happen. Even the Buddha couldn't make that happen. But what, what, he, what you can do is you can continually manifest the truths that are commonly understood, commonly uh, understood to be beneficial. Peace, harmlessness, generosity, truthfulness. Yeah? These are not in dispute. These are things that any clear what minded person would say, that's right, that's what that's the best. You continue to manifest those, that's your offering. And uh, that's that's those are the qualities that can cause faith to arise in other people. Now you see quite many of the the way that the Buddha described someone getting to getting towards understanding the Dhamma was they would see someone else who gave them faith. Someone else, they looked at this person and thought, oh, oh, she's really, she's really quite a beautiful person. She's a very lovely person, you know. She seems composed and calm and peaceful and clear. I wonder what she's about. So because of that, they draw close. They ask a few questions. What do you do? What are you about? Why is it like that? And you say, well, I do this. They listen, they take it in, they think about it, they check it out they start to work with themselves. But the original opening was the act, was the faith. Now you can't say, you have faith in me. You know, you've got to have faith in me. But you can manifest those qualities that some people will say, oh, I like that. And they want to get close to where you are. You know? So anyway, it does count, it does rest upon yourself. But yourself always manifests in the world of other people. And, and some of those other people, are going to be interested. And uh, that's the way it should be. <clears throat> and the beauty of it is that uh, you know, the, the qualities of peacefulness or kindness or patience or whatever, they're transpersonal. It means different personalities, all kinds of different kinds of people can experience those states. Yeah? I mean, it's not bound up to a gender. It's only, not only women who can be kind. <laughs> it's not just uh, intelligent people. It's not just highly educated people. It's not just, you know, any kind of person. These go beyond personality differences. So that means, it means people start to see that someone like you, you know, you can, you can identify with. Uh, and, uh, those qualities of, of really transcendent virtues, transpersonal virtues, um, the beauty of it is how it, that they're accessible to many different personality types. So we don't have to um, you know, make people a certain way. They, you just shine the light and those people who are attracted will be that way. But naturally, you know, the question of, of compassion and concern is 
It's, uh, you know, once there's a feeling of frustration or, you know, why, why are so many people going crazy? Why is there so much violence? Why is there so much ignorance in the world? You know? And then this is where, you know, one to develop more equanimity. <laughs> Which is because of karma. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, when you you really look think of cause and effect. Cause and effect. How much killing goes on every day? Yeah. How much stealing goes on every day? How much drink drug abuse goes on every day? How much lying goes on every day? You know? No wonder the world's like this because the five precepts aren't kept. You know, I mean, I don't know what percentage, pretty small percentage. Five precepts are not an incredibly esoteric theological viewpoint. You know, they're not, they're not Buddhists. They're just, you know. I think you guys would like to do that because I was to kill the hospital because the alien would be this. Well, <laughs> I'm just changing. <laughs> that, that is very really hard to observe. Really. I was just thinking the other day, well, if time has changed and he has knew that he has got so many deaths, perhaps he's a long 